Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses this morning. Let's read through John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Notice what it says for us. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, that, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were there set six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. You know, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've, you know, we're, we spent quite a bit of time in the first chapter for good reason. There's a lot there. And certainly in this second chapter, we see a, a wedding at Cana. And, we, and it's the first sign or the first miracle that Jesus performed in his ministry. And it was at a wedding. And I love that idea. And when we think of these signs and these miracles that Jesus did, in fact, the Gospel of John, the signs or the miracles, these events were cherry-picked out of his ministry. Do you understand the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give a, a, a chronology of, of Jesus' ministry when you put them all together, including John, actually. But John's gospel is very different because John's heart was to get across this idea of Jesus being the pre-incarnate Christ, the very Son of God, the Word become flesh and dwelling among us. And so he cherry-picks things out of the life of Jesus, and he puts them here. And why did he do that? Because he tells us in the 20th chapter, in the verse 31, which is really the theme of the Gospel of John. And that is, and truly Jesus did many other signs, same word that we have here in verse 11 of our text this morning, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and notice, and that believing you might have life through his name. So there's a purpose for these things. You know, the Bible's not just put together happenstance. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason behind it. There's a theme of, of redemption all throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis, all the way through Revelation. And it's there if you'll see it. That's why Jesus could say on every, every place, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In the volume of the book, it is written of him. 
And John's gospel contains seven signs or miracles that show Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. We see the very, um, we see it again in verse 11 in our text this morning, underline that word signs, this beginning of signs he did. And in the book of Revelation, you remember when we were there not too long ago in, in Revelation chapter 13, the very first time we hear of that same word is in the chapter where it talks about the false prophet. And it says, he, speaking of the false prophet, performs great signs or miracles so that he even makes fire come down from heaven. This is the same idea, Jesus, these miracles, these signs that he's showing, again, for a purpose, not just happenstance. God doesn't do anything by happenstance or chance. Everything is done with precision and reason and order because he is a God of order. Did he not speak all things into existence with a word? And the Bible tells us with the same word, he's going to speak everything out of existence. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we will be there forever and ever. That is the eternal state for the believer. What a joy that is. Everybody smile. I want to see it. Okay. All right. We're going, all right there's a, ushers, can you grab that guy in the back row there? He's not smiling quite as wide. <laughs> But it's true, these signs, we see Jesus in this one changing water into wine, which he has the influence over the natural. We know that. And if he spoke everything into existence, certainly anything that he has created, he has command over if he chooses. That's why he could walk on water. That's why he could command Peter to come out of the boat and walk on water, and it would be so, because he commanded it, see. The difference, if God is commanding it, things happen. If I command it, nothing happens. In fact, I'm not even supposed to command anything. But when he commands, and see, that's the God we serve. He changed the water into wine. We'll see in the Gospel of John that he heals an official son in Capernaum. He heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals a blind man. He raises Lazarus from the dead. All of these things pointing to the fact that only God can do that. And yes, only God can do that because it is God who is doing it. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And certainly, to, to compound that idea, Jesus gives those seven I am statements as well. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And when Jesus says, I am, he is basically equating himself to the same person, God the Father, the same one who, was, who spoke to Moses and that fiery, flaming bush that was not consumed in Exodus chapter 3. God said to him, to Moses out of that fiery bush, he says, Moses says, who, who am I going to say who sent me, Lord? You want me to go back to deliver your people out of Egypt? I don't have any name. I don't have any clout. And Jesus said to him through the bush, tell him I am sent you. I am that I am sent you. And so when Jesus is giving these I am statements, the Jews knew very well what he was saying. And that's why when he would say, you know, I am the resurrection and the life, or whatever. They would pick up a stone ready to stone him. He knew what that meant, and so did they. Don't let anybody say that Jesus never claimed he was God. The Gospel of John is filled with it. In other Gospels, too, but this one specifically. 
Let's look at the first verse here. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. There's a lot of things that happened on the third day that are significant. Can anybody name one? The resurrection, right? That's certainly the most significant thing that happened on the third day. And the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. The most significant thing that happened on the third day. But what about Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 as Abraham went up there to worship with his son and he bound wood on him and, and, and took him up there. And you remember what happened as he was about ready to sacrifice his son because the Lord told him to do that. And that's really quite crazy if you think about it because Abraham knew that Human sacrifice was pagan in its origin. It was, that's what the pagans did. Why would God allow me to, why would he want me to do this? Well, he must have known the voice of God enough and believed that if he was to kill him, that God would raise him from the grave. And that's exactly what the Bible says. He saw him in a figure, but God stopped him before it happened. He gave him a replacement, a lamb as a replacement. And Jesus being the lamb of God, that happened on the third day. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai in fire before he gave the law to the children of Israel. He did that on the third day. He had them prepare and sanctify themselves the third day. I love what it says in 2 Peter. He says, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And then there's this wonderful prophecy, and I couldn't help but share this with you. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, the prophet says, After two days he will revive us, speaking of the Jews. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Think about when Jesus was born, from that, first, that whole first millennia, from the time he was born up to 1000 AD. That was the first day. Because one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And then notice what the prophet said. And after two days, he will revive us. What happened in 1948 in that time between 1,000 and 2,000? 1948, what happened? God brought the nation of Israel back into their land again. May 14th, 1948. Very significant date. And then I love what Hosea says here. And he says, on the third day, he will raise us up. You know what that means? We're living in the third day. Sometime between 2,000 and 3,000, and I believe it's going to be sooner than later, looking at the way things are, he's going to raise us up. You know, and I think that not only for the Jew would that be true, because in this, think about how many years we've got. We're very early in, the, in the, this third day, this year 2000. But in that, the Lord could come at any time. We would be raised and we know that we will be with the Lord, the seven-year tribulation, and then the millennial reign. And before the, and, as, and when Jesus comes back, the, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected as well on the third day. Do you understand? So it, it doesn't take a long, we can't name dates and times, and we certainly are not, but I think a thousand years is a pretty good, um, pretty good uh, time frame to say these things are going to happen. Do you believe that? I believe it. I will be surprised if we're here in another 20 years. Maybe even the next ten. Maybe the five. Who knows? But notice there was a wedding. And in a Jewish custom, the groom 
he would come to the, his bride's house and he would retrieve her unto himself and he would take her back to either the home that he had made or back to his father's house. Doesn't that sound familiar? A groom coming to grab his bride and take her to his father's house. Isn't that what Jesus said he would do with us? He would come and he would retrieve her and he would bring her to his own house. And they would consummate the marriage. And then they would have a seven-day feast. Seven-day feast. What are we going to be doing in heaven for seven years while all hell is breaking loose on the earth? We're going to be in the wedding feast with Jesus. Even the the prophecy goes with the, the Jewish wedding traditions. And it was at a wedding that the first miracle was performed. How significant is that? Seriously, do you think that the Lord loves the idea of marriage? I think he does. In fact, he invented it. He established that covenant, that institution of marriage. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, let me just read it to you. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then, male and female, he created them. Notice he didn't create two men. The world would be just full of muscle cars and guns and empty pizza boxes. No, male and female. He created them. What a wonderful thing. Male and female. He created them. And what did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living thing that creeps on the earth. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, what did he say to Adam? He goes into a little more detail on, on that whole arrangement. He says, So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds, all the animals. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which he, the Lord God had created or had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. God didn't need to make a new woman. He, he just already took the material that he made Adam out of, took a piece of that, and created woman. And woman literally means from man. That's what the word means. And I wonder if it was on his left side where the heart is. Maybe in heaven we'll see the scar. <laughs> and go up to Adam and say, was it the left side? He goes, you better believe it, right the heart, because she came right out of my heart. That's where God wanted her to be. He wanted me to love her with all of my heart. To treat her well. To treat her like she deserves to be treated. He created her for me to care for. And she's to be a help for me. And I'm to love her. And I am to love her. And I love that. that that's God's way. And there are those around us who scoff at that and try to redefine things. And sorry, it's not going to happen. It's been well established. This cannot be altered. Amen? It cannot be. So notice that it's in Cana of Galilee. Cana is a place right in the center. of. If you were to look at a map, and um, I apologize I didn't have things ready for you this morning, but midway really between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right there in, in, the, in the Galilee region, there's a little town um, of Cana. It's directly north, about nine miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. As a young man with his mother, Mary and Joseph. And it was at this Cana, the, the name of it means the nest. 
And I think of I think of a I think of a mother bird creating a nest, you know. And I think of wedding, and I think of what a mother or a wife goes through. And I saw my wife going through the same same thing too. And and women when they get when they're married and they start and they're they're having children, they have this wonderful way of creating a really beautiful nest. That's what it is. Their home is their nest, and that's a wonderful thing. Men can't do that. We're not designed to do that. But God created the woman for that. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. So this place in Cana. It says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. Notice, Jesus was invited to the wedding. Is Jesus invited to weddings today? Does the bride and groom and the family, do they value marriage and invite Jesus into their marriage? Certainly maybe for Christian marriages. And maybe even there's some kind of nod of respect for the unbeliever going into a marriage. They do it in a church because they've got to. And some of them want to, honestly. They, they, they have a, a, a part in their heart that is reverent toward the Lord. But I fear Jesus' presence is not really desired and has become more of a formality in many marriages today. So much so that people just go through the drive through in Las Vegas. Go through the drive-thru and get, do you know they have a drive-thru in Vegas? We can get married? Or just going to the justice of the peace. There's, again, there's nothing wrong with that if circumstances dictated, but where's God in your marriage? Where is he? How valuable is the sanctity of marriage? Is it being compromised? The definition, again, of marriage Our culture is trying to cancel the Christian view of marriage. And it's not even a Christian view of marriage. It's a God, God's view of marriage. He created it. He has the right to call it, define it, and have us abide by it. But now we have people telling us that marriage can be anything. It can be between a male and a male, a woman and a woman. It can be between a man and a child. How sick that is. I heard of one where a guy actually got married to his MacBook Pro. Seriously. He married his Mac. Can you believe that? (laughs) But marriage is between one man and one woman. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Amen? And when they ran out of wine, notice the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Often wedding feasts again would last about a week and there would be a lot of celebrating and they would have wine. And the wine that you're thinking of is not the wine that they had. What they would do is they would dilute the, the wine because it would be too strong and you get inebriated pretty quickly. So what they would do is often they'd have one part wine and two parts water. So it would really dilute it. So there wouldn't be any people staggering around and uh, calling each other names and fights breaking out between the Jews. Um, none of that kind of thing. But that, that's what they would do. And so running out of wine was a very shameful thing in that culture. It's sort of like inviting your friends over for dinner not having enough food. Except in that culture, it was even a greater no-no if you didn't have enough for your guests. It'd be shameful. In this wedding, we don't know who was getting married here. We don't know if it was one of Jesus' siblings. It could have been a relative, a cousin. We really don't know. But whatever it is, Jesus, or Mary, she had a somewhat of a significant role in it. 
because she felt responsible for the loss of the wine or not having enough wine. And I love the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters. You know, in in verse 12 of the text we're looking at today, it says that he went down with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. There's been a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church uh, called the perpetual virginity of, of Mary, saying that she was a virgin not only prior, which I agree with, Um, And certainly during, I agree with that too. But after Jesus was born, she didn't remain a virgin. Because Mary and Joseph continued to have kids. In fact, in Matthew 13, verse 55, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, which is Judah, and his name, or James, and and his sisters, sisters, plural, are they not all here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So Jesus had at least four other brothers, at least two other sisters. This is a pretty big family. So are you going to believe the the dogma, or are you going to believe the Bible? The Bible, yes, we're going to believe the Bible. And notice what Jesus said to her. He said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come this This word woman, when Jesus uses this phrase, he's not being disrespectful, although there is a mild rebuke here. The word guinea is the name woman that he's using, and it's it's just a very common, endearing term for a woman. He's not degrading his mother. He wouldn't do that. Being the son of God, he wouldn't do that. But when he says, what does your concern have to do with me, Jesus was reminding Mary, Mary, I'm not a miracle worker. That's not what I'm here to do. My purpose is much greater. It's not just to fill water pots with wine. And she got it immediately. And Jesus, being the eldest of the sons, of all the kids, of all this, at least seven of them, right? There's four and two daughters, at least two daughters. And him, that's that's seven, that's eight. He was the eldest, and so... At this point in time, we believe Joseph probably has already passed from the scene or will pass from the scene. And so Jesus, as the eldest, he would be calling the shots. They would all look to him. But Mary had overstepped her bounds. And Jesus, then and even now, he's not going to be manipulated by any, anybody. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be. And yet we try. Have you ever tried to manipulate the Lord? Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this. And the Lord goes, why don't you do that and just do that? No, it doesn't feel good. I I, want to, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do that. He's like, well, why don't you just do that? (laughs) Without any conditions. You can't manipulate the Son of God. Notice in the end of that verse, too, he says, my hour has not yet come. When he says, my hour has not yet come, it means that he, he, it wasn't his time to manifest himself, to make his ministry known yet. It was, it was starting. And, and I love the fact that the Lord had 
a, very, a, a plan from the very beginning, and it was throttled by him and God the Father. He knew exactly what he was going to do, when he was going to do it. Everything was very carefully orchestrated, and he wasn't going to um, make himself to be something too soon. There was a reason for it all, and, and I think we know why. They probably would have tried to put him on the cross earlier if he had just come out with guns blazing in, in his message and everything that he was about. But it was that slow introduction and, then, um, and all of those things. It was very controlled by the Lord. And so it wasn't his time. And it, and it probably meant that the time of his impending death was not yet. Because really when he said my hour has not yet come, that's really what he's focusing on is the fact that my, my time of leaving this earth is not yet. And also I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just a miracle worker. I have things to do and, and it's very well orchestrated. Many times in the scripture it says that his hour had not yet come. We see that in John 7, verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. (laughs) It wasn't time. He was able to walk through the crowd as they were trying to arrest him or do something to him, throw him off the cliff. But his hour had not yet come, and he was able to evade them. But there was a time when he said, my hour had come. In John chapter 12, we read this on Good Friday, or I'm sorry, the week before that, um, Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which was less than a week before his crucifixion. It says, Jesus answered them in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And meaning it wasn't a literal hour, but it was a, a, a period of time, a very defined, a very marked period of time where Jesus, his hour had come. And that's exactly what happened. He knew that his hour had come. It was time to put this thing in full throttle and head like face like Jerusalem like flint and to go forward and to accomplish the Father's will for him. In John chapter 13, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then that very same night as Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, in the high priestly prayer that we read in John 17, what did he say? The very first verse says, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. There was an hour. It wasn't in anybody else's time frame. It certainly wasn't on Mary's calendar. It wasn't on his brother's calendar. His brothers even uh, told him, he says, Depart and go into Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers at that time did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. His hour had not come, but there came a time when his hour did come, and it wasn't on Mary's calendar, nobody else's. And his mother said, verse 5, to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I want you to underline these words because these are the last recorded words of Mary in the Scripture. The last recorded words of Mary in the Scripture. And I love what she says. It's a good lesson for all of us. Did Mary say, I am equal with Christ. 
And therefore, worship me. What I say goes. If you need something from the Son of God, you come through me. I will be your mediatrix. There's some churches that teach that. But what is her last words recorded in Scripture? Whatever he says, do it. (laughs) It's not Mary's fault. It's not Mary's fault. She's in heaven while people in Guadalupe are, are bowing to a statue and looking for tears and you know hand, marks and hands and all these weird apparitions. And she's looking down going, oh, Lord. And, and I can just see the Lord going, it's okay, Mary. It's not your fault. It's all them. <laughs> it's all their fault. It's not your fault. But these are the last words. And the question remains for us, are we doing what Jesus says? Whatever he says, do it. Are we doing the same thing? Are we doing what Jesus tells us to do? Are we obedient children? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. Sometimes that's one of the greatest ways to show that you love someone is by being obedient. Kids, children, young people, think of that. You say you love your parents, but you don't obey them. That basically says that you really don't love them. If I love my wife and there's things that she would like me to do, I'm going to listen and vice versa. And when I say to my daughter, I need you to do this, and then she doesn't do it, or if she does, I mean, I'm not saying she doesn't do it, but you get the idea. Disobedience proves that we really don't love, but obedience says, hey, you really love. Be challenged by that. Young people and adults. When the word of God tells you to do something and to to be thinking a certain way, are you going to just shrug that off and act like it doesn't matter? Or are you going to take it to heart? Are you going to take it to the carpet and say, Lord, help me to do this. I don't even want to do this. I don't even like to do this. But Lord, I, I want to submit to you. Give me a right heart, God. And if you can submit yourself to one whom you can't see, it won't be very hard for you to, It shouldn't be hard for you to submit to those whom you can see, your parents. 1 John 5, verse 3, John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. The more I walk with the Lord, the more I delight to do what he tells me to do. Because I find the secret that when I obey him, I find that my life is a blessing. It may not be easy. It may be hard sometimes. But to do the right thing is I I can always sleep at night. Even when I mess up, I can sleep at night knowing that he's forgiven me. But when when I'm obedient to him, there's a great peace and a great joy. Are you being obedient to God? Or is your life... Or is your pill chest filled with all kinds of anxiety medicines because you're living a life in opposition to God? Now, not everybody who has a problem is disobedient to God, but there are those whose lives have been racked with so much pain and guilt and suffering. And because they've, they've done the wrong thing, they've continually done the wrong thing. And now they've created a life that is complete opposition to God. They, they're paying the consequence for it. And the only thing that can null, dull that pain is the oxycodone or whatever the painkiller is, or whatever they find on the street. They, they, melt, they, they dull it to death instead of humbling themselves. Oh, how we need to humble ourselves today. I need to humble myself. Often, I need to 
The only way up is down. Didn't Jesus say, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted? Notice the, the order there. He doesn't say, exalt yourself and we'll take you higher. No, he says, if you humble yourself, I will exalt you. That's the way it's got to be. Is Jesus just Savior? Or is he Lord and Savior? This phrase, Lord and Savior, actually occurs four times in the New Testament in that order. Lord and Savior. It never occurs Savior and Lord. You know why? I believe the order there is significant. Because if he's not Lord of my life, then I won't have any great confidence that he's my Savior either. But when he's Lord of my life, if I'm submitting to him, I'll have the confidence that, because if I do that, I'm doing that because the Spirit of God is in me and I've submitted myself to him. And as a result of that, I'll have a greater confidence that he's doing something in me and that he loves me because I do those things that he asks. It's really pretty simple. It's not legalism. It's a relationship, right? But Lord and Savior, the order is very important. Lord and Savior. If he's just your Savior but not your Lord, you may say, I got my, 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 my ticket stamped to glory and then I'm just going to live like a pagan for the rest of my life. Your whole life is going to be racked with pain and suffering and you will have no confidence whatsoever that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. That is the truth. Because everyone I've talked to who has lived like that, they have no confidence whatsoever. Even those who say, oh, I believe, yeah, I believe in God. You know, they kind of a general thing. I believe in God. Well, do you believe in Jesus? No, I just believe in the Father. Well, Jesus said, if you don't have him, you don't have the Father either. So you got a kind of a wrinkle there. He has to be Lord first. And then your Savior. You'll have confidence that he's your Savior. Make him your Lord today. People like the idea of just him being Savior because they want to continue in their sin. They don't want him to be Lord. A Lord requires obedience. It requires requires your heart. So now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So six pots. I mean, they're, they're not pots like these. They're bigger pots and they hold 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And the Jews would use that water to wash their hands. They had a, a lot of rituals in washing their hands. Nothing against washing hands. We've learned to wash our hands in the pandemic pretty well. Uh, so we kind of feel like Jews, don't we? We're always washing our hands and everything. But they would use that to wash their hands often, before, after, during. They'd wash their feet when they're out and about. They'd come home, wash their feet. They'd wash the feet of their guests. So these water pots were significant for them. And there'd be much water that's needed. But you know, that there's, a, there's something interesting in this as we, as we look at the water pots that the Jews would use for purifying, and we look at the wine that Jesus is going to provide, which is really symbolic if you think of it. The Old Testament, uh, the rules and the rituals, and then we have the wine which signifies the new life in Christ, the New Testament, the joy. And in here you have a type of the two. You have a type of the two. 
You remember the Pharisees, they were more concerned about the outward appearance rather than the inward. And that's, the, that's one of the big differences. God never meant it to be just an outward thing. Even in the Old Testament, it was always about the inward. But man, because we are all the same, we, we tend to make these things, uh, once we do it a few times, we, we, we develop a system. And before long, we forget why we're doing that. We just continue in it. Does that make sense? Anybody done that? You just kind of do something because you've done it forever. And then somebody asks, why do you do that? Because it's always been done that way. <laughs> we don't have a clue why we do it. But they were more concerned about the outward washings. Even um, the Lord spoke to Samuel, remember, and he says, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we have this treasure by the Spirit of God indwelling in us in this New Testament that we live in because we were Christians. We have the Spirit of God in us. And what a difference it is from the Old Testament, in a sense, at least the old ritual, not, not, not the, the laws themselves. They were good. The law was good. But the Jews got to the point where they were just going through the motions and they forgot that it really was an inward thing that God was wanting to do, but they got it external. Everything was external. They were full of uh, extortion and all kinds of stuff in their hearts. What did he say to them in Matthew? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They forgot that God was always about the internal, not just the external. God cares about the external, but he really cares about the internal because it's what happens inside that manifests itself outwardly. Isn't that what Paul said to the Philippians? He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The salvation that God has given you, the spirit of God indwelling in you, is what conforms you from the inside. And as he's doing that, it becomes obvious or manifested outwardly. When the spirit of God is in me, my, my mouth is not so filthy. When the spirit of God is in me, my, my, I'm being transformed inside, from the inside out. My mind is not thinking evil things. I'm not doing evil things. I don't have a propensity to continue doing evil things. It doesn't mean you're sinless. And when you make a mistake, you make a mistake and you sin and you confess it and you're, you're clean again from the, as far as the Lord is concerned. But what are you doing? Is it just outward? The washing? Or is it all about the inside? It's all about the inside, folks. It's all about the inside. Jesus at the Last Supper, what did he say? He said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, because Judas was in the room. And I love what, John's, uh, what Jesus said later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 15, verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus speaks a word, and you are clean. You are clean by the word of God not through the external washing of hands and stuff like that. God would much rather have a person who's got a muddy face, all filthy, dirty, and comes and they've been cleansed on the inside. He would much rather have that. That's one of the, the, one of the big deals when Calvary Chapel, the movement, started in the 60s. The hippies came off the streets and they began to fill Chuck Smith's church there. And I remember the elders of that church were getting really upset because they just put in a new carpet. 
And these hippies would come in with their dirty sandals, with their dirty clothes. They would stink. And they would come in and, 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 they, and, and Chuck rebuked them. And he said, well, if the carpet's a problem, then just tear the carpet out and take it out of here. I love that. Keep the people, but get rid of the carpet. If the carpet's being a stumbling block, then get rid of it. God cares about people. He sees the inside. He wants to clean you on the inside. He wants to save you. Are you saved this morning? Are you born again of the Spirit of God? The Bible says that if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you are not a Christian. I don't care if you sell baked goods to to Mother Teresa. I don't care what you do, no matter the bake sales that you do. I don't care if you help the elderly across the street. Those are all good things to do. When Virginia needs to go outside, by all means, help her out to her car. Those are all good things we ought to do anyway, but those things don't make us right with God. We do those things because we are right with God, right? We don't try to earn it. You can't earn it. In verse 7, he says, Jesus said to them, notice these, there's these six water pots, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And he says, um, fill the water pots with water. And notice, they filled them up to the brim. They were obedient to Jesus. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And they must have thought he was crazy. Are you kidding me? You're going to fill these water pots up that are used for the purifying of the Jews, washing of hands? And you're going to fill those up and then you want us to draw water out and take it to the... Okay, we'll just do it. We'll do what you said. There is a wonderful, wonderful thing is to just be obedient. Regardless of what you think. If Jesus says to do something, do we argue with him? We actually, we do, don't we? We argue with him all the time. You know, he tells us to do something or put something on our heart. Well, there's got to be a better way than that. The Bible kind of tells us to do something. We're like, I I think I can do a better job. In fact, I can do it and not get caught. I can do it and not get caught. Watch me, Lord. He's like, okay, I've seen this before. (laughs) Just waiting for the ball to drop. Yeah, they must have thought he was crazy, but they obeyed him. And in the obeying is when God did the miracle. I love that. So when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, notice, but the servants, the servants who had drawn the water, they knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And I love this. There's a phrase and, um, that I've heard that I, I kind of like it. It says, they, they, they know him best who serve him most. And I think there's some truth to that. You know, when you serve the Lord, you get to know him. You know his ways. You get to see what he does. And these servants, certainly by obeying, they were all whispering and going, I can't believe this is happening. And everybody else was completely oblivious to it. They were just having, go, the, the, the wedding feast was going on. But the servants knew. They were obedient. They saw what Jesus did. And I love that. In John chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus said to his disciples there in the upper room, he says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's a relationship. That's a relationship. That's the kind of relationship I want. Do you want that same relationship? I know, do you? Say yes if you do. Okay, great. Awesome. Awesome. And he, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, 
than the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. And you know, this seems to be the way with the Lord. This seems to be his way. What do I mean by that? The natural to the supernatural. The corruption to incorruption. The natural to the supernatural. Do you follow me? He took just water and made it into wine. That can't happen except God does it. Nobody on the planet can make that happen. That's why this, this, this marriage at Cana and this incident that happened here is so important. He takes something, na- he has power over, the, over nature. He can say, wind be still. He could be in the middle of a hurricane. He can drop down one of the, those Navy SEALs guys, you know, with the, the, the Black Hawk helicopter, then go right down in the center of the eye of the storm. Jesus could get on a raft and say, be still. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the satellite image of that swirling motion just kind of goes, it's over. Wow, what an amazing coincidence. No, no coincidences. Almighty God. But from the natural to the, un, you know, to the supernatural. I love when in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, speaking concerning our resurrection bodies, he says this. He says the body is sown in corruption. Our body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And that's what we celebrated on Easter Sunday. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body, just as Jesus rose again from that natural body that he had to a supernatural celestial body, the resurrection body, which you and I, folks, are going to have as well. I'm looking forward to that day. I'll probably be 20 or 30 pounds skinnier, which would be really good. Be able to live forever in that body, and so will you. No sickness, no disease, no arthritis, no osteoporosis, no cancer, no indigestion, no more Tums, guys. No more aching joints. You don't have to go to Florida then to escape the cold weather and the arthritis that it brings upon you. It's a natural body, and there, there is a spiritual body. And, and, he, and he says it's written, the first Adam uh, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural. And then afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man, the Lord from heaven. You get the idea from natural to supernatural, from corruption to incorruption. And now he's taking simple water and he's making it into a supernatural thing. Wine, 120 gallons of it. That feast that's going to go for a week, they're going to have plenty. Plenty of joy. I love the contrast with this in the Old Testament. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. And remember what Jesus spoke to that woman at the well. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. She was standing there at the well in Samaria, and Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water of this well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What a difference between the old and the new. 
The Spirit of God is what makes the difference. Indwelling us. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice, this is the beginning of signs or miracles. It's the beginning, it wasn't the end. But notice the result of it. His disciples, what they do? They believed in him. Even though their understanding was immature, we know that to be the case. They didn't have a great deep understanding of who Jesus was, but their faith, their devotion to him would develop. It would grow over time as Jesus would spend time with them. It's very clear that their understanding of him was growing because of passages like this one in John chapter 2. We're going to get to this later on in the next week. Where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Notice, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. When he had risen from the dead. So all that time that Jesus was with him, they were still a little cloudy on what this was all about. But when he rose again, what does it say? His disciples remembered that he had said this to him, and they believed the scripture and the word which he had said. And in fact, after his resurrection, remember... It says, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb when it followed John, the apostle, and saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. And then John says, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, and guess what? For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the grave, rise again from the dead. They didn't know it. And this was after the resurrection. So you know what, I feel comforted by that because I feel like I'm in good company. Do you feel like you're in good company when you don't always get something and you have to go through school again? You have to learn something again the second time? Can I let you know a little secret? I was actually held back in in kindergarten. I went through kindergarten once. I started when I was five. And then I was so immature that they actually held me back again for another year to go through kindergarten. Because when the teacher would close her eyes, I would run out of the classroom. And, and she, missed, she didn't even recognize that I was gone for a while. But I, I went to a park near my house, and I hung out there for the whole day. And my mom was at work, had no idea that I was in a park all by myself, playing on the swing sets. Why did I bring that up? I have no idea. Actually, I really don't. I had a plan there, and it just kind of went south on me, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but he, they didn't know. They didn't know. And, and I, 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 there's, there's my point. is I, I can relate to this because I don't have it all together. I have to learn things again and again and again. And don't be ashamed by that. Don't be ashamed by that. The main thing is that you learn. If you don't learn from your mistake, that's the travesty. When you don't learn. I like to learn. Do you like to learn? I really do. I like to learn. I don't like making mistakes over and over again. I like making them. I make them once and I feel embarrassed. The second time I feel like a real weirdo. And I'm like, you know what? This is it. I'm done. I don't want to make the same mistake again. It hurts. It's too painful. Plus my pride is hurt too, which is really the main thing. Right? But I want to share something with you today in our last 10 minutes together. 
It says, The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You know, I don't believe that this miracle that Jesus did, this first miracle, I don't believe it was any coincidence that he did it at a wedding. He did it at a wedding. It's a miracle. It is a miracle when God can bring two sinners together, male and female, both sinners. The male, a sinner, and the female, a sinner. Sorry, ladies, I know that, you, you know, you, got, you ladies are more perfect than us guys. I, I admit that. However, still, in God's eyes, you're still a sinner. A male and female. You put them together, it's a miracle. Oh, my God, they didn't kill each other. Did he put the cat back on the toothpaste? Oh, I can't believe. Did he put the toilet paper roll on the outside where it goes down like that? Did he put the seat down? Did he lift the seat up? Did she lift the seat up? You know, all these little things. You put two people together, a miracle. miracle. And that's why it's a miracle and that God wants to continue doing that miracle. Many marriages within the church need a miracle. They do. How is your marriage? Honestly, how is your marriage? Is it doing well? Could it use a little help? Could it use a lot of help? Are you on the brink of divorce? I know there are some. I know there are some. And we hide very well. We don't seek counsel. Why is that? If you're hurting today when your your spouse, and I know some have been at each other's throat for years and they still are together and their kids are like and because of the pride and because of the unwilling to, willingness to forgive because of the unwillingness to change and the pride it just it never ever heals it's like this cancer within the family and, and, the, and the husband is too proud to admit that he's wrong or the wife is too proud to admit that she's wrong they both are too proud to admit that they're both wrong because usually that's what the case is they are both wrong It's not just one, it's both. Jesus needs to do a miracle in many marriages in our fellowship today. Seriously. I get the privilege of talking and praying and talking to you. And I know there's a lot of marriages that are doing really well. Some are kind of just coasting. Others are on life support. But know this. God hates divorce. And the divorce rate in the church is just as bad as the outside. We've heard that. But God hates divorce. I know this because I'm going to read it to you in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. There it is. He hates it. Because usually when people get divorced, it's because their heart has become so hardened. Their hearts have become seared. You know when James talks about a heart being seared? It means that you're beyond feeling. You got to the point where you're just like cohabitating with one another, but that's it. You got separate bank accounts. You live in separate beds. Always pointing the finger. You hardly talk to each other. There's no intimacy. Does that sound familiar? If it does, there's hope. But why won't you get in the light? Why won't you get in the light? What are you afraid of? The Lord wants to heal you. He wants to heal your marriage. As Jesus did the, the miracle at the, at the wedding, I think he did that on purpose because he valued 
marriage so much. And everyone who's going to read that passage is going to realize, wow, a miracle was done at a wedding. Boy, honey, we need a miracle. Maybe you do. Maybe you do need a miracle. I think all of us could use some help. My marriage is not perfect with my wife. And I got my problems, and she doesn't have very many. Actually, she doesn't have any. But are you willing to be wrong? Do you even care at all? Have you gotten to that point where you don't care anymore? Are you willing to work it out? Or do you just want to give it up because you don't think it's worth it anymore? Uh, the kids will be out of the house pretty soon and we'll just we'll stay together for them. But after that, we'll just break it off. Is that really your attitude? You better wake up. God has a better plan for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants to bless you in that marriage. Will you humble your heart? Are you communicating, praying? Are you reading together? Are you taking the time to do that? Because guess what? The, the, the time is going to get away from you. Life takes over. And you have to interrupt life to make these things that are very purposeful to happen. They are not going to happen by osmosis. They're not, they have to be very purposeful. I have to be very purposeful, and so do you. I want to be more purposeful. It won't happen by just going on autopilot. Autopilot breeds divorce. Autopilot just causes things to decay. You have to work at it, folks. We have to work at it. But the, the greatest work we can do is getting on our knees with our spouse being open, communicating, talking things out, being dreadfully honest, painfully honest about everything at the right time and in the right way, and listening to each other, mainly listening. Will you listen to your spouse? Ask them. If there's any, if there's, list some things that if you could change about me, what would they be? And to look at and, and to be willing to take that list and go, Lord, by your grace, help me incorporate all these things in my life. Change me. Within, real, within realism, of course. I mean, if your wife says, I want you to look like, you know, Lou Ferrigno, kind of hard to do that. But most women don't care about that. Are you communicating? Are you praying? Are you reading the word together? How's the intimacy going? Certainly spiritually, but physically as well. Nobody likes to talk about that, but how, how are things? Are you willing to change? Don't dig in your heels. We'll end with this passage. It's a great passage. It's in Ephesians 5. You might as well turn there. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Again, the miracle of Cana. <laughs> the miracle at a wedding. There are many miracles that need to happen in this room today, in marriages. I need that too, folks. We're not alone. Let's not hide from one another. Find somebody that you, that you trust and can talk things out. Somebody that is maybe, a, could be an elder, a pastor, or whatever. But get together with somebody who you can talk to and have them help you out. Pray. Seek the Lord first. 
In Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, this is a passage that will really kind of set things in their right place. Notice, wives, submit you to your own husbands as to the Lord. Many wives don't want to submit to their husbands because their their husband is not a very nice guy. And so they choose not to submit to him. They don't submit to him because he... He's not very kind to her, and so she's like, I'm not going to submit to him. Now, that's a really tall order, I understand. But did you ever consider the strength and the power of God in you to submit even when your husband doesn't deserve to be submitted to? You just do it because that's the right thing to do? Within reason, of course. If he's abusive, then get out of there. You know. But if he's just being a, a bozo... <laughs> You know, and he's just uh, thick-headed and proud and self-focused, self-centered. Submit to him, and you continue to pray. And what does it say for the, the husband? For the husband is the head of the wife, and also Christ, as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church, as we, the bride of Christ, are subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands, notice, in everything. In everything. But then it gets better because then the Lord gets on the, on the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Agape them. Love them. Notice, not, don't just love them physically. It's easy for that. Anybody, anybody can do that. If you're born and you're a male, that can happen. Very without, that's autopilot. Easy. Huh. For the, then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now that's a whole different thing. That takes a real man, guys. That takes a real man. Real men love Jesus. Real men do these things. Any boy can reproduce. Right? Any boy can do the very natural thing, and you know what I'm talking about. But to love and to be self-sacrificing, to think of your wife before you think of yourself, to love her as Christ. Think about what Christ did for us, and that's what we're to be to our wives. That's a very tall order, and that's something that, that's why we need the Spirit of God. We need him. I need him. I cannot do it. I can't. Without him. Love your wives, guys, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might present, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, notice, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Isn't that what Christ wants to do for us? Guys, that's what we want to do for our wives. We want to bless them. Stir that pot again. Things gotten cold, stir it up again. And I can tell you one of the greatest ways to stir up the pot is to get on your knees with your wife and start praying with her. Start talking about real things, exploit, you know, being open with your heart. More than anything, she wants to hear your heart, guys. She wants to hear what's really going on. Who are you? What are you doing? Do you really love me? We've been married for several years. Do you really still love me? Or do you want to trade me in for a thinner model? Do you really love me? Because real love goes beyond all that stuff. Real love looks beyond all that stuff.
For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, notice, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Are you still leaving and cleaving after 20 years of marriage? Are you still going back to your parents and asking for advice? There's nothing wrong with asking for advice, but are you leaving and cleaving? Guys, are you leaving and cleaving. Ladies, are you leaving and cleaving? Letting God do this. That's the most important relationship in your life right now is the relationship between, other than the Lord, your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with your spouse is the most important. Kids second. This has got to be unified. This has to be solid. Notice Paul finishes up here, and we'll end here. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Boy, we we really need that lesson again. We could hear this every single day, and it would be applicable and pertinent to all of us. Because I don't know of anyone in the room whose marriage is perfect. And if your marriage is not perfect, that means there's room for improvement. Just like mine. My marriage is not perfect. There are a lot of things that I need to change and continue to change in. And same thing with my wife. The same thing with all of you. Are you willing? Or are you beyond feeling? Have you, have you gotten to that point where you're just so angry with your spouse that you're like, you know what, I, I, I don't want anything to do with them. Seek the Lord and don't give up. Seek the Lord and don't give up. And seek help. Find somebody Find a group, a husband and wife that maybe is older in the Lord or even younger in the Lord, but maybe more spiritually mature than you are. Get together and talk and hold those things in confidence and build each other up. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Building each other up in Christ. Not in the world, but in Christ. Let's do that. Let's build each other up. The Lord loves you, guys. He loves you immensely. He loves, he loves your marriage. He knows how you're hurting. Come into the light with him. And let him love you. Let him love you through your spouse again. Spouse, make sure that you're that conduit of love. And don't be like the Dead Sea where you're always taking in but not giving out. Give, give, give. It's a secret. Give, give out. Let's stand together. This first sign Jesus did at the wedding in Cana, the very first sign, how important is it? How important is a wedding? How important is a marriage? It's the very foundation, the very backbone of not only the church, but of our country. The most important thing, more than the government, your marriage, our marriages, more important than the government. Certainly more important, you know, the Lord looks at it and he says, it's of great price to me. And the reason he says that is because it's just like you and me, he says. The church in him. Because I want that to be just like that. So, Father, we just come before you, Lord, and, Lord, these are 
hard things, God. And um, we ask for your help, Lord. You're the only one who can help us. You're the only one who can help us. And Lord, help us to go to you first and ask for help and for cleansing, for healing. No matter what we're involved in, no matter how bad things are, no matter, even if we're on the brink, Lord, on the edge, and ready to throw in the towel, God, would you please save? Would you please pour out your spirit again? Would you please stir the pot? And Lord, help us. We invite you to do it, God, please, in your mercy, save marriages in this body and heal marriages in this body. And Lord, prepare us for the day that you retrieve your bride unto yourself at the rapture, Lord. May we be ready and shining bright, waiting for you. Lord, how we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.